Hey Flamethrowers, Amira here with your third and final best of episode. Happy New Year. Before I start, I want to talk about my own uh, personal resolutions or goals that I'm looking forward to in this new year. Of course, you know I love Peloton, but one of my favorite Peloton instructors, Jess Sims, has a saying that's really been sticking with me because I think it applies so much to my own journey as well as how we think about a lot of sports that we cover. And that is that you're a masterpiece and a work in progress at the same time. Now, when I hear that, you're a masterpiece and you're a work in progress at the same time, it really reminds me to pause and think about all the ways I'm striving, everything I'm reaching for, but not losing myself, not beating myself up, uh, not getting stuck in inadequacies, even while you're reaching and pushing yourself for change um, or for more skills or patience with yourself, whatever it is, whatever those goals are. And I think we have this tendency at the beginning of a year to decide all the things you want to change or, you know, you start the workout plan, you do this, you do that. Um, and I think that especially over the last two and a half years, time has just condensed in a way that it feels really counterproductive to put ourselves on these imaginary timelines. Um, and so thinking about the duality of being both a masterpiece, just who you are in yourself, and also a work in progress um, feels really liberating to me. And I think about this for myself um, and the ways I want to have patience with myself and push myself and challenge myself, but also not do so in a way that like requires me to talk down on myself or get in my head about who I am or what I'm doing. Um, but I think about that when we think about sports that we love and that we want to do better. And a lot of what we do here on Burn It All Down is exactly that work. There's things that we love, even with leagues that are constantly on our burn pile. And there's things that we continually want um, better for the sports that we consume. We strive to uplift and hold up the examples, those torchbearers, as well as get rid and shed and burn down the things that are just the excess baggage that are just at the phrase of the picture that we don't want in there that we want to crop out. And I hope we continue to bring that energy into 2022 um, and, and last uh, beyond that so that we can continue to make both sporting futures and our whole selves uh, proud each day. And so in that spirit, the first segment that um, I'm bringing to this episode is Brenda's amazing narrative storytelling about the horse Medina Spirit. Now, Medina Spirit recently just passed away, which if you've listened to this before, um, seems like an epilogue to this wonderful reporting that Brenda did. But I, I put it in here because it's a masterpiece in terms of storytelling. And I hope that in this next year, we continue to bring you really interesting stories in in really creative, narrative ways. And I think Brenda exemplified that in this piece right here. When the Kentucky Derby doping scandal involving winner Medina Spirit and his trainer Bob Baffer erupted in May, like a lot of people, I didn't really understand what on earth was happening. So I talked to three experts in the horse racing world and an entire universe unfolded that I never knew existed. So buckle up, flamethrowers, for a story about sex, drugs, and hay. Medina Spirit, a thoroughbred foal, was born on April 5th, 2018 to Protonico and Mongolian Changa in Ocala, Florida. Medina Spirit boasts a decent pedigree, including Secretariat, who still holds the fastest Kentucky Derby time from 1973. 
But Medina Spirit's parents hadn't performed up to expectations, and he simply didn't look like a winner. At auction, he fetched a mere $1,000, which is chump change in horse racing. Top yearlings can sell well into the millions. A year in, Medina Spirit started to show potential, what trainers call precocity, competitiveness, and speed, and he became a good fit to help his cohort train. We are bound Ridgeline by Protonico and Magnolia Chunga by Brilliant Speed, subject to the Florida sales tax. Spoken. Who get 20? 20. Word spread about the colt, and Saudi venture capitalist Amr Zidane snatched him up for $35,000. At 35, thanks, Wood. 37, see you down the road. 35, 37, and I have Ralph. 35,000. Two-year-old thoroughbred prices range pretty widely, topping out at $16 million but by all accounts, $35,000 is well below the average. Here's Amr Zadan on Dubai Racing. He showed uh, signs of, of ability all the way when we picked him up on the sale. If you really take a deep dive into uh, pedigree, it, it screams distance. The Dark Bay Colt is named after Zadan's home city of Medina, one of the holiest sites in Islam, and the horse's grandmother, Alpha Spirit. Quite a divine name. Uh, he showed a heart that is bigger than bigger than himself. So he, he just refuses for anyone to pass him. Zidane then sent Medina Spirit, along with his first string horses, to legendary trainer Bob Baffert. And if there's one thing to say about Bob Baffert, he, he, he's an artist. He is someone that just, just, just feels it. Under Baffert, Medina Spirit just kept outrunning his better-bred competitors and he qualified for the Kentucky Derby because of the points he earned in lead-up races. Still, Medina Spirit was maybe Baffert's number four or five horse. Then... Today, news broke that one of the top Kentucky Derby contenders, Life is Good, undefeated for Hall of Famer Bob Baffert, announced he is off the Derby trail. The undefeated Life is Good, who was poised to win the Triple Crown, was sidelined by an injury just before the Kentucky Derby. As much as we talk about Kentucky Derby, we talk about Bob. How deep is his bench still, even without Life is Good? This was Medina Spirit's chance to take the Derby a first-place prize of $1.86 million. Bob Baffert will be in Kentucky for the Kentucky Derby this year. It's a question of what's his, what's his biggest bullet. Still, the experts didn't focus on Medina Spirit, even as a dark horse contender. Just walked in on May 1st at Churchill Downs Racetrack in Louisville. 19 three-year-olds. All in line and ready for the start. They're off. In the Kentucky Derby. A 12-to-1 odds unfavorite. Medina Spirit's win was truly a Cinderella story. Come into the final furlong. Mandaloon fighting for the front. Medina Spirit battles on. Hot Rod Charlie on the outside. Essential quality on the far outside. The four of them coming to the finish in the Kentucky Derby. Here's the wire. Bob Baffert does it again. Medina Spirit has won the Kentucky Derby. What does it mean to set the record now, Bobby? It's the seventh time. Nobody's ever won this many times. I, I just can't believe it hasn't sunken in yet. But The know, horse racing community blew up with analysis and speculation following the Derby. The, the funny thing is, I suppose, going into the race, hardly anyone was, was talking about your cult. Bloggers wondered, maybe it was the brilliance of John Velasquez, the Puerto Rican jockey that many consider among the all-time greats. Oh, he's an idol for us in Puerto Rico. Um, he's... 
one of the best ever. Or was it just the Bob Baffert touch? Well, it goes to show if you overlook a horse in the Kentucky Derby that is trained by Hall of Famer Bob Baffert, there's a good chance he'll make you look foolish. How had so many who knew so much about horse racing ignored Medina Spirit? But that little horse, he won it today. I mean, that's a, he doesn't know how much he cost, but you know what? What a little racehorse. He's, he was all racehorse today. But the Cinderella story took a tumble when Medina Spirit failed a post-derby drug test for steroid use. Happening right now on w Drug test that Medina Spirit failed after winning the Kentucky Derby. The horse tested positive for a banned steroid after winning the Derby. The horse was busted for doping. Metazone, an anti-inflammatory which is prohibited on race day at Churchill Downs. After a second sample came back positive for betamethasone, which is prohibited at any level on race day in Kentucky, Maryland, and New York, the sanctions, the lawsuits, and recriminations began. The horse, all he did was run fast. He did what he was supposed to do, okay? That's Joe Drape, an expert on horse racing who covers the sport for the New York Times and has written multiple books on the sport's history. You know, you can't really discount his achievement but the humans around him failed him and if it was an accidental dosage that doesn't matter the rules are the rules if they did something intentionally that's terrible for a medical perspective on betamethasone i spoke with dr megan kerford a racetrack veterinarian who specializes in horse sport injuries uh sometimes with race horses uh just like human athletes uh, pro football players, a good example, they get wear and tear in their joints and they get arthritis. And so then we inject the joint. So commonly in horses, uh, we use betamethasone. It has a very strict 14 day withdrawal. Which means it takes 14 days to exit the horse's system. In Bob Baffert's case, they were using a topical ointment with betamethasone in it. And the withdrawal is different for topical versus if you give it uh, Interarticularly, which means in the joint or in the muscle, it's different. It absorbs differently through the skin. So the amount that the horse had um, probably did not affect how he ran. Now, the rules clearly state you can have no betamethasone in your system, regardless of how the horse got it in their system. In horse racing, medications are so harshly regulated, not only to keep the playing field even, but to prevent serious injury to horses who really aren't healthy enough to be racing. We do not want to mask any pain. So if a horse is running and they feel pain, we want them to stop before they have what we call a catastrophic injury, which is a breakdown on the racetrack. Like a human will stop. If I'm in a race and I'm like, oh, my knee hurts, I'm going to stop. A horse won't. They will keep running. Which is why PETA, among others, have blamed doping, even drugs that can't be detected, on keeping horses running even when they shouldn't. So I wondered to myself, has racing always been so grueling for the horse? Had it always been like this? Some listeners may just really be shocked <laughs> at what the 19th century demanded. In short, yes. I asked Dr. Catherine Mooney, an associate professor of history at Florida State University and author of Race Horse Men, How Slavery and Freedom Were Made at the Racetrack, how do you compare today's horse racing with the past in terms of the, the physical demands on the horse? Uh, well, first of all, they were racing horses older. So they were more likely to race four and five-year-olds or even six-year-olds or older. 
and the highest prestige prizes before, say, the 1890s were heat racing, where it was, you know, best of however many. And the sort of most prestigious races were four-mile heat races. Theoretically, your horse could be going 12 miles in one day. So the the differences in what we demand in terms of distance are obviously just like worlds, worlds, worlds apart. Today, the most prestigious events are dash races, one-time short sprints. It's why some consider the Kentucky Derby the most exciting two minutes in sports. But according to Dr. Mooney, young horses competing in dash races has its own set of issues. How fast is this horse being asked to go? How is the horse being bred to encourage precocity um, and also trained and developed to encourage precocity at a very young age so that, you know, the horse may still have physical vulnerabilities and be, you know, less able because it's still growing to stay healthy while while competing at, at that speed even on shorter distances. Another thing that has sort of changed, but sort of not, in horse racing is who it's for. Horse racing has been the sport of royalty since ancient times. In the U.S. antebellum period, horse racing relied on slave labor. And while that has changed, the sport is still a site of elite elbow rubbing and grossly expensive women's hats. So it shocked some to see Bob Baffert, who seems more like a sunglassed silver fox mafioso than British royalty, become the winningest trainer in the history of the Kentucky Derby with Medina Spirit's win. But Medina Spirit's positive test isn't Baffert's first doping violation. In fact, Baffert has had five horses test positive for banned substances just this year alone. In the weeks after the Kentucky Derby, Baffert appeared across the news media to defend his multiple violations, and he showed a flair for explaining away his horse's tests. Here he is on Dan Patrick's show. In the last uh, couple of years, I've had some, like, Justify was the big one. He had, he ingested uh, scopolamine, which it comes in the hay. I hadn't, I couldn't prevent that. And we resolved that. It was it was a bad headline. Uh, I had a a groom that urinated. After he had COVID, and after he's getting over, he urinated in the stall, and the horse ate it. It was a cough uh, medicine. We resolved that. Uh, you know, things like that happen because they're testing at these really extremely low levels. Saturday Night Live even did a skit mocking Baffert's presence. Sure, Bob. So your horse tested positive for steroids, but you deny any involvement? Of course I deny it, Michael. Bob Baffert's not stupid. I don't cheat. Do I look like a shady character to you? Honestly, yes, Bob. Yes, you do. I think if people got to know him, you'd see Medina Spears. He's actually a really cool guy. Normal horse. Check it out. He's got everything a normal horse has. <laughs> Throbbing muscles, back knee, a perfect square Zac Efron jaw, baseball bat shaft, pea-sized ball. <laughs> you call that a normal horse? Yes, Michael. And here he is on vacation. Well, is he at a Mexican pharmacy? Oh, so now a horse camp party? Come on, Michael. <laughs> and here he is hitting his 73rd home run. So now that we have the tests in... Medina Spirit may have his Kentucky Derby win retracted. What has happened here with Medina Spirit is he's now confirmed that the drug tests failed, two of them. Uh, 
there go to a hearing, he's likely to get disqualified. That means Mr. Zenden, the owner, does not get the 1.8 first place check, uh, nor does Bafford and the jockey get their 10% of that. As far as I understand, a lot of this finance is about recouping losses because these owners don't actually necessarily care most about profits. Is that right? Yeah, I, I got a good antidote about that. Jerry Moss, who won a derby with Giacomo and owned probably the greatest race mare of our time, Zenyatta, he started A&M Records, okay? He's got beautiful things and palaces all over. And he's a really nice down-to-earth guy, a guy from the Bronx. And he said, with all my success in horse race, I've never made a dime in it. And he says, anybody who tells you they're going to make money in horse racing is lying to you. And there's a saying, you know, how do you become a millionaire in horse racing? You start as a billionaire. And, uh, <laughs> and you know, and I, I have owned horses. Yeah. And I have owned horses throughout the years. And really, all you want to do is, you know, get some money back. It's a lot like gambling on them. I guess the dream, it's like playing the lottery ticket, is if you can buy, own, breed a Kentucky Derby winner, boom, you know, there's there's your 30 million. There's your 60 million. And I think that's the dream that drives guys and women with money. I mean, Trump owned a horse at one point. Steinbrenner owned a bunch. Uh, there's sheiks, there's all kinds, and it's their ego, but no matter how successful they were and whatever they did before, you know, they're brought to their knees by horse racing because it's not, it's not a, a game that you can put a system on. I mean, it's nature. And historian Catherine Mooney agreed, more than money is at stake in horse racing. And horses aren't just horses. But an animal who is understood to represent you is competing. And in that sense, I think it's a really powerful way of sort of suggesting, hey, I didn't get to be incredibly, incredibly, incredibly rich and live on Fifth Avenue because somehow the world is unfair. I got to be in this position because I actually deserve it because I'm a winner, right? And if only you were a winner, you could be in my position too, right? I mean, it's it's one of the great sort of displays of ostensible meritocracy in this weird by proxy way. And that means that the horses themselves come to represent all sorts of things about, you know, their masculinity and their identity and their power and, you know, whatever. And that means that the horses in a weird way end up not as tools, but as alter egos. But as a winning owner, what was it like? Well, well. Again, Amr Zadan on Dubai Racing. It, it's really emotional uh, to sum it all up. But at the same time, you know, as as a parent, uh, you know, my boys are young, and and, and 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 my daughter. Everyone's just so proud of it. It's just a legacy you'd like to leave. You'd like to leave something that that's 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 intangible. Something that you just can't acquire. So maybe actually winning races is for the ego and recouping losses from those races is just part of the business, which most owners do by breeding. Top studs can make up to 250000 a breeding session. In other words, to have sexual intercourse with a mare. This can be three times a day and they can be flown all over the world to mate. 
But to get that kind of clout, it's necessary for the horses to be seen and succeed in major stake races. And that's likely what Medina Spirit will be doing in the near future. On top of the intense breeding and doping, there are other concerns about horse racing that have surfaced over the past few years. There have been a spate of catastrophic accidents, and maybe most puzzling and striking was during the 2019 winter-spring meeting where 30 horses died at Santa Anita, a prominent racing track. Another horse has died at the Santa Anita racetrack in Southern California. So dying at racetracks is not uncommon. Four-year-old Colt has died while training at Santa Anita racetrack today. 30th horse death yesterday here at the park. The Just this summer, Santa Anita's had three fatalities, including a horse named Pushing 60. The chestnut filly was exiting a far turn when it fractured her left front ankle. The injury was considered too severe for recovery, and pushing 60 was euthanized. That was the 11th racing or training death at Santa Anita since the meeting started in December 2020. So I wondered to myself, could the sport even survive these tragic accidents and these scandals? I mean, I hear more about the scandals and problems in horse racing at this point than about horse racing itself. Well, Congress is actually trying to help. At the end of 2020, Congress passed and the president signed the Horse Racing Integrity and Safety Act. It's actually a piece of cross-party legislation that is supposed to take effect on July 1st, 2022. And the act demands standards and conditions for thoroughbred racing because of the tragedies, also to make uniform the medication rules and regulations, because currently the rules on substances are set at the state level which to describe as chaotic would be a gross understatement. Regardless of Congress's actions, it's the stakeholders that may in fact force reform. And by stakeholders, I mean the original source of the term, the gamblers. A group of gamblers, or as Joe puts them, horse players, called betting bettors, has filed a class action lawsuit against Baffert. Horse players and horse players, which I count myself among, are a cranky, erudite bunch. And, you know, it's not just about the money. It's about being right. And if you're right, you get rewarded. So, you know, for those of us who bet on Mandaloon, the second place horse, and, you know, several million dollars worth of it, we don't get our money back. The Medina Spirit has been paid and though that money's already been spent, likely, by various bettors on that. So, you know, a group came together and sued both him, Baffert, the owner, and in another case, Churchill Downs, for the money they lost. Given everything that has occurred, you might think our experts would feel conflicted and concerned about the continuation of the sport itself. I have... And you'd be right. I have very mixed feelings. Here's Catherine Mooney. So speaking as a historian, I would say that our understanding of animals as, you know, to be cherished and to be sort of cosseted that way and not to be work animals is such a relatively new idea that, you know, to historicize it is probably helpful, right? But, and also I would say as, as somebody who has spent a lot of time very happily with performance horses who are very well taken care of, um, I know plenty of horses who love to compete, you know, who are just like, I'm going to show you something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're going to, you're going to really like this. 
and I don't I don't want them to lose that. But that doesn't mean that I don't sympathize with what I think is the very sincere desire to protect those animals. And that has to be at the core of everything we do. Veterinarian Dr. Megan Kerford emphasized that scandal is not the defining feature of the sport. I honestly think we're heading in the right direction. Like it's really been cleaned up. And I just hope we, I hope that what's happened recently doesn't taint. I hope the actions of one person doesn't taint the view of all the wonderful people in the horse industry that are following the rules and are trying to do everything correct and love their animals. And for Joe Drape, the future of horse racing is at a pivotal moment. You know, I like it sort of as a fan. I started following horse racing long before I ever became a reporter. I grew up going to the tracks. I've been to 140 of them in like 12 countries. Uh, I don't want it to go away, but it can't sustain this level of corruption. I mean, we didn't even mention the 27 trainers and vets who got indicted for doping horses, you know, in the beginning of 2020 and are going through the federal system right now. So uh, I hope this is the final wake-up call and it can't sustain this way, but we'll see. The horse should have an innate dignity and an innate right to safety and to, I mean, I don't know if it sounds overly sentimental, but to happiness or to contentment. Horses captivate people. Artists see them as challenges. Authors like William Faulkner tested human nature in their relationships to the animal and the ancients made them into demigods. Our language is littered with euphemisms. We use horsepower, we get Charlie horses. We hope to hear things straight from their mouths. As for Medina's spirit, his urine samples are crisscrossing the country, literally on planes traveling to testing labs as part of the legal wranglings, which are sure to go on for months, if not years. But it's nice to think that he's oblivious to it all. Every deep playoff run starts with building an amazing team. Doing the same for your business doesn't take a room full of scouts. You just need Indeed. Don't spend hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with the right skills when you can do it all with Indeed. Hate waiting? Indeed's US data shows over 80% of Indeed employers find quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job. Something I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy because with virtual interviews, Indeed saves you time. You can message, schedule, and interview top talent all in one place. Indeed knows that when you're growing your business, you have to make every dollar count. That's why when you sponsor a job, you only pay for quality applications from resumes in our database matching your job description. Visit indeed.com slash blue wire to start hiring today. Just go to indeed.com slash blue wire. That's indeed.com slash blue wire. Terms and conditions apply. Cost per application pricing not available for everyone. 
Need to hire? You need Indeed. And for the interview on this best of episode, I had to go back to Jessica's wonderful interview with Dr. Cheryl Cookie on the study of women's televised sports, because it is packed full of information that is exceedingly relevant today. And as we get into the heart of women's basketball season, as we think about the Olympics coming up, as we continue to get into the postseasons of some of these events, as we watch the NWSL, you know, rebuild all of these things, um, I think it's great to revisit this study and reaffirm what we're working towards, which is more robust coverage, which is better angles and framing of coverage, which is so many things um, that this interview covers, um, laying the foundation for the work that we do. And I think that it is a great interview to bring into the new year because we can create a blueprint for fixing some of these things. Jessica here. I'm joined today by Dr. Cheryl Cookie. She is a co-author of the excellent book, No Slam Dunk, Gender, Sport, and the Unevenness of Social Change. Most importantly, for the conversation you're about to hear, Dr. Cookie is one of the lead researchers on a three-decades-long study into the amount of space and the kind of reporting women's sports gets on television. Spoiler alert, it's not great, any of it. The latest version of the study was recently released in the journal Communication and Sport, and it's available to anyone, no paywall involved. We will share a link to it in our show notes. I'm very excited to have Dr. Cheryl Cookie on Burn It All Down to talk about her work. Cheryl, please tell our listeners who you are and what you do. My name is Cheryl Cookie. I'm a professor of American Studies and Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies at Purdue University. Uh, I study, uh, teach, and do research on the intersections of gender, sport, culture, race, media, uh, and um, I'm just I'm grateful to be here today. How did you get into that topic? Because as we're going to talk about, like, you've been doing this for decades now. So, like, how did you first get into this? Like, how did you end up in this work? Oh, sure. Yeah, that's that's a great question. I'll I'll try to keep this short for the listeners. Um, It it really was just sort of by accident. Um, I'm I don't, although I could uh, identify as an athlete, I played a lot of sports growing up as a kid. um, And I think was good enough to get by, um, and, and do a number of different sports, but not incredibly skilled to really excel at any one. Uh, and so I think, you know, kind of you hit that, that, that works when you're in like elementary school and junior high, Uh but then once you get to high school, it's sort of like the, the stakes are raised a little bit more. And, and, um, I was on the gymnastics team freshman year, um, dropped out, uh, in a large part because I just didn't really see, a whole lot of support either um, uh, from my family. And and that wasn't like they weren't unsupportive, that just sports weren't really a part of my parents' experiences growing up. Um, uh, my, my peer group, the culture, um, I didn't really get a whole lot of messages that really valued uh, what I was doing. Um, and in fact, it seemed like the, the girls in my high school that did play sports, particularly those that were in uh, non-feminine or best ma- masculine sports, um, were often like ostracized and made fun of. And, you know, that, that those messages really impacted me, unfortunately. And so I dropped out. Um, so how does somebody who drops out of sport then become, <laughs> <laughs> then become, you know, devoted to sports such that as their entire career? Um, you know, I've always kind of enjoyed sports. I've been a fan of sports. Sports fandom has been a part of, of my family in different ways. My great, or I'm sorry, my grandfather 
uh, was a Cubs fan. So he and I would, you know, kind of sit on the porch in the summers and, and listen to, to ball games. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, undergraduate for me was very um, different in the sense that I was a first generation college student. Um, not a lot of people in my family w- really went to college other than a cousin or two. And I didn't really know what I was doing. And so I was kind of working my way through uh, thought I'd be pre-med, thought I'd go into physical therapy. So I was taking all these kinesiology classes that are focused on sport and human movement um, and hmm. kind of found my yeah. way into that after doing about 400 hours of clinical work in a PT clinic, realized that wasn't for me. So, um, but I love to learn. I love to do research, uh, found myself in graduate school because I didn't really have any job, real job prospects after undergrad. And uh Came to know sociology as a field, realized that there were people that were studying sport from a sociocultural perspective. And um, I just look at you now. Yeah, yeah. The rest <laughs> is history, I, su- I suppose, as they say. So, Cheryl, you have been tracking and analyzing. This is your wording, so I'm just copying yeah. you. So you've been tracking and analyzing the quantity and quality of coverage of women's and men's sports and televised news and highlight shows for 30 years now. Yeah. And that work is foundational to how we understand the massive underrepresentation of women's sports and athletes within sports media. Anyone listening to this who cares about women's sports, you've heard the 4% uh, number. And I like, that's your number. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. But I was wondering this 30 year study, the longitudinal I've practiced that word, the longitudinal study across decades. How did this project get started? That's a great question. Um, the Amateur Athletic Foundation of Los Angeles, which was a, a nonprofit entity that was formed uh, out of the proceeds of the 1984 Olympics, held uh-huh. a conference in the late 80s or you know somewhere around there. Um, and, and the conference attendees were mostly industry people, journalists. Uh, and at one of the sessions at the conference, um, the speakers talked about uh, the the racism and sexism in sport media. After the presentation, the audience, um, again, many of whom were were journalists and, and broadcasters, um, challenged the speaker in saying that, well, you know, the, the examples that you gave, these are just anecdotes. You're kind of cherry picking examples to make us look bad. Um, you know, this certainly mm. is is not characteristic of what we do. And in fact, you know, that that this is these are anomalies um, and this is not indicative of, of of sport media. And so the Amateur Athletic Foundation uh, commissioned uh, Mike Messner, uh, who's my co-author on the study, and Margaret Carlisle Duncan, um, who was uh, one of the original collaborators in the project and who are also in the audience that day and asked them, hey, can you help us out? Can we get some research to find out if, in fact, you know, are these really just sort of the extreme examples or or is this more indicative of a larger issue? Help us out here. And so that's how the study got started. Um, I came in in 1999 as a research assistant for Mike when I was his graduate student at USC. Uh, and then uh, sometime around the mid 2000s, Margaret Carlisle Duncan retired and she was sort of transitioning um, off. And I happened to call Mike because Mike and I still kept in touch and said, Hey, you know what? I know like timing wise, like the, um, you guys should be gearing up for the next iteration of the study. Like what's going on or, you know, fill me Mm -hmm. in on the details. And he's like, Oh, I don't know. You know, Margaret's retiring. She's kind of stepping back from research. 
I'm just not sure if I, I have it in me or bandwidth. I can't remember the exact language that he used. And, and I said, no, Mike, this is, this is an important study. Like you, you, you have to do this. I said, you know, if I can be so bold, like I will volunteer to help out. Um, and I'd, I'd love to collaborate with you on it. And so I kind of, um, y- you know, elbowed your way in there. Yeah. I elbowed my way, way in. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I, I kind of became the, the, the starting quarterback and, and Mike now sits on the sidelines and, and helps calls plays, but, um, or, or whatever the appropriate sport metaphor might be. Um, and so, uh, in 2009, I kind of took on that lead role. Um, and we've, we've been kind of at it, uh, since. Yeah. And like I said, that 4% number, I think is probably the most famous part Mm -hmm. of this continual study. Um, And I want to say, like you talking about it, was this indicative, was this anecdotal, like, and you have found that it is systemic, right? And Mm -hmm. this, this is number is sort of like the rallying cry (laughs) of that, the systemic issues. And I think it's maybe one of the most depressing things about the study. And the fact that there's been almost no change in this number across these three decades. And we're talking about the coverage of women's sports on TV news and like ESPN Sports Center. Yeah. So I want to be really clear um, with, with this particular study, we are looking at televised uh, news and highlight shows. And we added on in the 2019 data collection, online daily newsletters and social media accounts of those same media outlets that we look at in the televised part of the study, right? And so I do think what is surprising about uh, the study is the fact that in over 30 years, again, looking at that specific, those media outlets uh, and the specific timeframes that we examine, that there has been relatively little change. And it's it's varied over time, right? So we got uh, a spike up to about 8% in 1999. It dropped back down. It was as low as like 32 um, or around there, um, the last iteration, and it has kind of jumped, jumped up, quote unquote, jumped up to about 5%, um, which is where we started in 1989. Um, and I can talk a little bit more about the 5%. Well, it's interesting because we're talking, so the data for this latest one is 2019. Mm-hmm. And even though it feels like last year, that two years ago now, the Women's World Cup happened. And so you say like everything is skewed here. Like, in fact, if you remove the Women's World Cup coverage, we get down into the 3%. Mm-hmm. We're talking about like all of the sports coverage that you guys looked at, 3%. If if you take out the Women's World Cup because you address the fact that nationalism and there's a way that that forces stories forward. But I just feel like this is such a, I don't even know if you can answer this question, but I just feel like, is there no hope here? Like, I feel like it, this is so good to have this data and we're all out here yelling 4% all the time. And, and it, True, but I just like when I read this last night, I was like, "Oh my gosh!" Yeah, like we are just in the late '80s. Like, like how can we? How can it be the same? Yeah, I think. I mean, that's that's the million dollar question, right? I think um, there there's a number of of things that we point to. Uh, you know, maybe why it's it's the same. Um, in some cases, it's with the local affiliates, it's the same broadcasters from like. 20, 25, 30 years ago, right? So, I mean, yeah. in, in that sense, right? Um, you know, I think I think there's a way that at least within these kind of legacy media spaces, um, so we're talking about kind of the big media, sport media outlets like SportsCenter, ESPN, Sports Illustrated, um, you know, the, the major networks, the major news media outlets. Um, I, I, I think there's a way that the 
logics by which those organizations operate are so deeply entrenched in a particular worldview that is so outdated and also so resistant to empirical evidence that would suggest that there actually is a market for women's sports, that there actually is an audience for women's sports, that there actually is interest in watching and following and consuming um, women's sports and, and knowing about sports athletes. Uh, and and it's it, it's sort of that those those organizations are just sort of um, immune or kind of resistant to taking that in. And for me, I think that speaks to how deeply rooted sexism is in those particular organizations and institutions, such that even if you are able to include more women, right? Or even as as uh, commentators, as broadcasters, which I know ESPN likes to sort of champion its, its gender diversity, which relatively speaking, um, according to Richard Lapchick's um, it's something, right? It's yeah, it is something. Yeah, yeah. It's it skews all his data. Like if you take ESPN out of his data, then like it, everything gets way worse. They actually are, all things considered, doing all right. <laughs> they're doing all right. They're doing all right. But what's interesting is that they're, um, and we didn't necessarily systematically measure this, but um, in terms of the qualitative analyses, one of the things that I was noticing is that there, the it wasn't as if oh now there's a woman who's the the anchor or a woman who's the commentator and we're getting a much different view um, or we're getting different types of, of sports covered or we're getting a different kind of delivery and excitement. It's like, no, this is Ashley Brewer, who's now who was at um, KABC. And right. then I think last I checked, she's now at ESPN. Um, you know, she's she's doing the same type of uh kind of stylistic delivery and presentation that the the male anchors were doing. And, and she was covering, you know, men's sports and, and talking about baseball before it even started. So I, and again, I don't, I don't think the commentators themselves have a lot of decisions or sorry, sorry, a lot of power um, in, in terms of maybe setting the agenda of what gets, gets covered. But um, you know, certainly I think this idea that, that if we bring more women in, there's going to be some change. Um, you know, when you asked, uh, Jessica, you know, is there hope? And I think when I look at our data and I look at our study, I just, you know, kind of, it's, it's super depressing. <laughs> um, it's, it's, it, it's surprising yet at the same time, I'm not surprised. Yeah. It feels that way. Where I find hope as a researcher and where I find hope as a, a fan of women's sports and, a, and an advocate for gender equality is, and I hate to say this, but I'm going to plug your, your show, right? I find it in, I find it in um, this podcast. I find it in the work that you um, and your, your co-anchors are doing um, with respect to, to writing about sports from a feminist perspective to, to um, amplifying um, women athletes and, and, and stories about women's sports. Um, I look to all the diversity in terms of um, maybe what we would call like niche media spaces, right? So um, podcasts and blogs and, um, you know, those kinds of spaces where, um, you know, journalists and oftentimes, you know, kind of younger women journalists are, um, you know, pushing against that kind of business logics that I was um, talking about earlier and kind of pushing against that, that entrenched uh, sexism um, to talk about women's sports in, in different ways. The other thing that gives me hope too and I'm still not sure how I feel about this. We could talk more about this or we can move on. Um, 
uh, Deloitte and a couple of other um, entities. Mm-hmm. I, you saw the report, the forecasting on on the the untapped potential market for women's sports. Yeah, there's a lot of money. There's there. a yeah. lot of money to be made um, in in women's sports, and I I think the um, there's going to be a sea change as a result of that, or at least I'm I'm hoping there will be. And if there's not, then I think then I feel like all all will be lost. But at the same time. You know, I feel somewhat ambivalent about using the kind of commercial economic um, argument to to advocate for women's sports. I, I, I haven't quite worked out why I have that ambivalence, but I do. And um, I, I, you know, money might help, but I don't think it solves the problem. And the, the thing that I worry about is that then what happens when that market is potential is tapped, you know, or the well is run dry. Do we go back to doing the same thing? Yeah. And I think your study, part of what your study shows is that even if you present this kind of data, like you said before, people are resistant to it. So, you know, I feel that ambivalence because it should be about more than that. Like it shouldn't take that, right? Like is is how I feel. And it's it's interesting to hear you talk about this depressing part of the study because mm-hmm. all I was like, yeah, this is why we named the show Burn It All Down. Like it does just feel like we got to start from somewhere yeah. new because the old is so like entrenched, as you said. So let's talk about the the most recent study. You did this along with fellow researchers, Latoya Council, Maria Mears, and Michael Messner, as you talked about before. Uh, it's called One and Done, The Long Eclipse of Women's Televised Sports, 1989 to 2019. You published it in the journal Communication and Sports. Let's talk about the title, One and Done. What is the significance of this? Why Why are you referring to it in the title? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, it, it really came from me doing the qualitative uh, analyses of the, the, the coverage and um, I just found that that you know when you when you sit and you watch these shows, I mean this was what I did last summer. Just it was like back to back, back to back. You can see kind of things patterns emerge in ways that maybe you wouldn't if you you know once a week watch Sports Center mm, or what have you, right? And so what what kept kind of coming up repeatedly was I would get this there would be this story about a women's sport event, and it was usually you know, maybe it was a segment on um, the women's basketball tournament. Maybe it was a, a segment or two on women's tennis um, in the summer. Um, it was a, it was a segment um, or two on the world cup. And then once that segment was done, it, women's sports coverage was, was complete. Um, whereas with men's sports, one of the things that we we noticed was that the the stories about men's sports would repeat over time, and there would be different angles. So, for example, um, when we were collecting data, um, Anthony Davis signing to uh, the L.A. Lakers was a was a story, and it was a story not just that the story itself got repeated, like the same segment, which sometimes that happens, right? But it was okay. Now we're going to talk about Anthony Davis meeting with you know so and so, and now we're going to talk about Anthony Davis and his press conference, and now we're going to talk about Anthony Davis and some social media exchange that he had with LeBron James or whatever. And now we're going to talk. And so the story about <laughs> uh-huh. Anthony Davis signing to the Lakers gets uh, is a story that's told through multiple lenses over multiple segments, either within the same broadcast if we're talking about Sports Center, for example, or 
across different um, broadcasts if we're looking at the, the local affiliates. Whereas with the women's sports, it was, you know, it was the one segment or the one sport event or the one hmm. topic, and then it moved on, right? So there was, it just so happened that the way we sample, and we have to do this in order to be able to make comparisons over time, right? But it just so happened that our sampling dates caught the end of the Women's World Cup, right? So it, it was the day, I think it was, we got the day of the World Cup final, and then the day after. And as soon as Monday was over, I think there was maybe once uh, a couple of stories about the parade in New York. Um, and then it was done, right? Done. <laughs> One and done. Yeah. We didn't talk about women's soccer um, af- after that. And, and or, you know, again, if it, if it was, it was, you know, maybe it was a couple of weeks after our study stopped collection and it's a, you know, a, a short segment, but we don't see the kind of um, wall to wall 24 seven coverage of men's sports and especially kind of the men's big three or four. We don't just don't see that with mm-hmm. women's sports. Right. And so there isn't um, the analogy that I give is it's like if you if you buy a plant um, and, you know, you only water it once a year it's going to be really hard for that plant to grow, right? Whereas if, if you buy a plant <laughs> and you water it, I don't know, say it needs to be watered once a week, you water it once a week um, and you give it fertilizer and you put it in the sunlight and you trim back its leaves and you, um, you know, do all the kind of fun stuff with the soil that you can do with plants. And, and um, you know, that, that plant is going to grow, it's going to flourish um, and it's going to sprout out new little baby plants. Um, and, and we just don't see that with women's sports. Did that analogy make sense? I don't know. Does that work? <laughs> yeah, it makes so much sense. You know, obviously, the kind of work that I do is is not part of the study because I write and uh, publish in, online and stuff like that. But it makes me think of I had the story that was big a few years ago, and I talked about this on the show a fair amount, about girls who play baseball. And it took me five months to place the story, and it was huge when it landed. Like, it was so huge that Nightly News, NBC Nightly News did their own segment, HBO Real Sports did their own segment. Like, it was a viral success. And I knew it the whole time, and that's why I pushed really hard to get this out. But part of the story is that it got rejected over and over and over again. And at an outlet that I won't name because I still write in this world – um, I was told, well, we already wrote about girls who play baseball and they sent me a link from two years before. Oh gosh. And it was like, I don't, to this day, it was like, what, what? Uh, and it's that kind of feeling of like, you can't have the same, like with women, if there, one story exists, mm-hmm. then like we are finished here like yeah. that. And then also that feeling of, uh, and this just recently happened where a friend was worried because the story they were going to publish, someone else published something similar. And I was like, there can be two. (laughs) Like, there's enough space for us to have two of these. But, and like you said, with Anthony Davis trade, like, there were probably 1 million articles, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, But with women's sport, we are, the scarcity model is just like so ingrained in us. And so it makes sense that it's reflected up on screen. Yeah. And I I think, I mean, sort of speaking, speaking to that, I mean, I I think that's, unfortunately a reality um and and in some of our data um what was interesting was that you know it's it's soon or not even when it happens right but two weeks before major league baseball starts i mean we were getting like segments on the the local affiliates and on on espn sports center about the start of spring training you know and, and this isn't even you know spring training i mean it's it's nice it's great whatever but i mean it's not the high stakes like and and so there's all kinds of 
uh, ways that through the, the, the coverage, right, that you, you communicate to audiences that this is important, this is exciting, the countdown of the start of spring training, um, two weeks left, 10 days left. This is something that we should all be looking forward to. It's like Christmas on the calendar. If you celebrate Christmas, right. And you're, you're checking off the X's on the calendar, just waiting for Santa to come. Um, and, and, you know, with, with women's sports, it, the event happens, it may get some coverage as soon as the event's over, like we, we checked off our box and you don't know what happens afterwards. What happens to these athletes? Where do they go? What are they doing in the off season? What are the important stories? I mean, it's just confined to the, that moment. And then, and what was interesting is with the um, women's tennis coverage, it was actually like once Serena got knocked out of the, the, the tournament, like literally the coverage, there was like no reason to cover women's, the women's tournament. I think it was Wimbledon. Um, and um, yet, yet men's tennis continued to be covered. Um, I think it in part because it was Roger Federer and um, Nadal. That's interesting. Lindsay just the other day was talking about a study that she read a few years ago about how uh, the coverage for women's tennis was either racist, sexist coverage of Serena or no coverage. Like, so you're either invisible within the coverage or you're Serena and you're taking on this intense racist, sexist media all the time. So I'm not surprised at all to hear that. It sounds like there's lots of data. And I mean, that's a pattern that we see um, and we've noted in some of, of, I've noted in some of my research, I think other folks have talked about this as well, is that um, that the, the controversies in women's sports tend to gain a lot of visibility and a lot of attention. This is not to say that the similar controversies in men's sports also do not generate attention. Right. They just get all the other stuff <laughs> and women don't. Exactly. Right. It's, it's within this broader landscape where we get to learn all the things. Um, and in fact, um, you know, I, I think uh, I haven't empirically studied this, but my sense is, I mean, I, I knew more about the um, weight room at the, the women's tournament than I did a, really about any of the teams. Right. I think what mm-hmm. what sort of pushed what was able to kind of push through that sort of glass ceiling um, in, in, in sports coverage to sort of rise to the top. Um, was that the, that conversation? And then this isn't to say that having conversations about sexism in sports and, and gender inequality aren't important topics. And I, I you know, I applaud the media um, for for drawing attention to these issues. And especially, I mean, it, it was really social media um, that I think uh, got on the radar of of some of the the um, mainstream sport outlets. But we also then need to keep talking about the tournament. Otherwise, these these kind of moments of inequality are going to persist. You do have a section in the paper titled March Madness, still mostly for men. And I would guess you can correct me if I'm wrong, but that this was ready for publication well before any of this news broke uh, about all the inequities this year. So, I mean, the inequities that we saw were not those were, you know, site inequities, the way the testing was done differently. Like this isn't the media, right? In your piece is about yes, and how the media is unequal in its coverage. But I wanted to know, like, do you see this all as related? Like the quality of the tournament for the women and the lack of coverage? Like, are these related to you? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, I definitely think so. Um, this might get a little bit complicated, and if if I were in a classroom, I'd probably get out my whiteboard, <laughs> all start, right, start drawing, all right. drawing a diagram. Take me through, professor. If we think about, um, you know, one of the justifications that the NCAA itself gave for the unequal treatment of of the women 
is the fact that the men generate revenue. Yes. Right. That the men's tournament generates revenue according to the NCAA, although there's some other evidence to suggest otherwise the women's tournament loses money. So a big reason why the men's tournament generates revenue is because the NCAA sells the rights to broadcast the tournament to the networks. And so the networks pay millions of dollars um, to, to, to get those rights fees mm-hmm. so they can broadcast mm-hmm. the games. The way the contracts work is that the men's NCAA basketball tournament is negotiated separately from the women's tournament. And the women's tournament is packaged with all the other NCAA championships. Okay, got it. So one thing we can think about is what would it look like if the women's tournament was packaged with the men's Hmm. and there was a kind of sharing there? Okay, so... Now the men's tournament is generating more more revenue because the the networks are willing to pay millions of dollars to the NCAA because they know millions of people are going to watch and tune in, right? So their ratings for these games are going to go up. Hmm. Now they operate under the assumption that the ratings aren't there for the women's, which some evidence suggests otherwise, but we'll table that conversation um, as well, right? So now it's the networks want to pay the money, right? because they can get the ratings. Why do ratings matter for networks? Ratings matter for networks because advertisers base how much they will pay for commercial time during an event based on, you know, those ratings, right? So that's why um, the Super Bowl, uh, right. you know, those, those networks get, you know, whatever it is. Um, it's, I think it was like 5 million for a 30 second spot last time I checked. It's probably even higher than that. Um, I'm not quite sure what the NCAA men's tournament gets for a 30 second uh, commercial slot, but so this all matters, right? Because of the audience piece of this matters, right? And so why do audiences tune in the NCAA final four tournament, the men's tournament. um, And I would say maybe to a certain extent, the women's, but the men's tournament for sure is, is now I think coming to the level of the Super Bowl. Right. Which is this is mm-hmm. this is a cultural event. You it's, can't miss it. You can't miss it. Yeah. And, and, and you know, this has been for years now. But, you know, that that um, offices, you know, back in the day before times. Right. When we all worked in, in, in offices or the brackets, the, the brackets and the pool office pools and everyone's watching the game. The shared experience. Like I watch the Super Bowl because I want to be able to talk to people about it. Not because I necessarily care about what's happening. We, we did a burn it all down Super Bowl watch thing right like because it's about that and yeah so the i agree march madness has on the men's side has that shared experience that goes along with it and i'm i I feel like you're gonna tell me that they have investment in making (laughs) us care this much yeah they do right and so so the, the news the news media and the sport media play a really powerful role in helping us and helping to create for audiences beyond just the viewing experience a, a, an exciting um, uh, atmosphere that surrounds the event that makes it really easy for me as a fan to engage, right? So mm-hmm. I want to fill out my bracket. I wrote an article um, a, a, several years ago for uh, a feminist blog, um, a Feminist Wire, me ranting about how difficult it was to, to fill out my bracket. Um, and, and even today, that's, I mean, I think there's been some, some changes and improvements. There's now actually an app for the women's bracket, although I struggled so many times to find it. Cause I feel like ESPN kept moving it in different spaces <laughs> on their smart, uh, smartphone, uh, uh, platform or app. Um, 
even the stories, right? So you, you, you tune, tune in a sports center or you, you know, you kind of log into social media and you see what people are talking about. And if they're talking about the men's sports, right, I, I can learn so much about the basket men's basketball season as somebody who's just a, either a casual fan or someone who's not a fan of sports at all, but wants to be a part of it. I call it osmosis. Yeah. They're like, I know more about the, I didn't know about the NBA just from existing. I don't watch it. I have mm-hmm. very little interest generally, but I can talk about it on a, yep. like in a pretty good way. Cause, and so I just feel like it must be osmosis that I'm just receiving. Whereas for women's sports, I've curated a very specific social media following, the newsletters that I read. Like I have done a lot of upfront work in order to make that less work now as March Madness is happening and we're about to have the draft and and WSL mm-hmm. Challenge Cup is coming up. And I know all that because people on my social media feeds are telling me this. And I work with women who care a lot about that. But, it, you know, there's a lot of work in, involved. Yeah. And I think that's the important that I really want to highlight that, right, that it, it it's labor that fans have to invest to be able to follow women's sports and have a similar kind of experience as a consumer, as a fan, as a spectator. It's a, it's a much different kind of labor and investment um, than I love that. I, that idea of osmosis, right? It doesn't take yeah, a it lot of comes work. Into your skin. It doesn't take labor. <laughs> yeah. Um, you just, yeah. You, you open up your, your uh, whatever, your social it's media there. feed or what have you. Yeah, it's there. It's there. And again, I think it's not to say that you cannot find information on women's sports. You just have to, you have to be willing to do the work, to do the labor, to be committed. And, and there's a, a small segment of, of, of folks that have the ability to do that, um, that kind of work. And then for the, I think the rest of the casual fans that are out there, um, it's just sort of like, eh, you know, I'll, I'll, you either don't know what's happening or you just sort of don't really have the opportunity to find out what's going on. Yeah. So the idea is like, if, the media that you're covering, if they would do a better job, not if it wasn't the one and done, if they were creating the same kind of constant sustained coverage that we see with the men, more people would tune into the women when it came time to negotiate these contracts for these TV stations for or for the coverage of something like March Madness. You could sell them for a lot more. And as soon as you sell them, the women for a lot more, everyone becomes more invested. And then the cycle ramps up right uh and it's just so Mm -hmm. hard to break this inertia where we keep screaming i feel like we're all screaming about it all the time um yeah we're slowly i mean it was very exciting last weekend for me to go between the two tournaments between on abc and cbs and i was just like wow like the women are on abc the men are on cbs this is incredible uh but it does also feel very strange that it's 2021 and like what a big deal that we're (laughs) We're on ABC. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did want to ask about one other term that comes up in in the study this time, and I think was in previous studies, but uh, gender bland sexism, which is such yes. an interesting idea. Will you tell me what gender bland sexism is? Yeah. So this is a, a kind of a, a concept that we uh, developed, and this was it was originally um, presented in the previous iteration. So Michaela Musto. Uh, was um, uh, the graduate student working with us at the time. And this was was something that she had kind of picked up on in her qualitative analysis. And, and, and we developed this concept uh, to talk about the ways 
uh, I should backtrack. So we developed this concept uh, borrowing from Edward Bonilla Silva's concept of colorblind racism. And colorblind racism is essentially the ways in which racism operates in society in, in, in more covert ways, right? Um, and, and I won't go in too much into those details, right? So it's not, you know, the explicit, you can't sit, you know, at the front of the bus, um, but it's these more kind of um, implicit covert ways that, that racism uh, manifests. So we, we sort of took that and, and sort of tweaked it to talk about um, not just gender blind sexism, because certainly gender is quite visible in sports spaces. It's always visible. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the gender bland element is the way in which kind of the bland delivery, flat delivery um, is itself a kind of form of of sexism. Hmm. So in previous iterations of our study, we had advocated for more respectful coverage of women's sports because back then the sexism was quite overt, right? It was, you know, a a story about uh, a naked bungee jumper, a a woman naked bungee jumper um, that had painted her body with green paint on St. Patrick's Day. It was, um, you know, trivialization of of women athletes making fun of them or using them as the object of kind of sexualized humor, humorous sexualization. Really, so when you see those, right, this is quite overt, clearly sexism. Most people can identify it and point to it. So we're advocating more respectful coverage, more respectful coverage. Well, what we found was that um, in, in part due to a lot of changes, which I can talk a little bit more about, um, then the media, uh, at least within our sample, sort of stopped doing the kind of sexualization. We saw that sort of fall out, fall out um, of the, the qualitative analysis. And eventually we got to a point where the ways in which women's sports stories were delivered was in this monotone, flat delivery um, so it wasn't, they weren't sexualizing athletes, but they also weren't infusing in the coverage, the kind of high production values, exciting language, colorful, com- like colorful uh, adjectives and, and commentary um, that we saw with the men's. And so it really kind of created this very distinct um, uh, difference mm-hmm. in, in terms of how you, as a viewer, were um, seeing women's sports versus seeing men's sports. And so it's a kind of sexism mm. that operates under the radar. Most people aren't going to pick up on it because it's like, oh, well, they're talking about the sport and they're highlighting the, you know, they're talking about the game and they're showing, you know, a highlight reel or what have you, but it's absent from these other high production values. And so what we, we argued using this concept then is that uh, the message that viewers take away from that is that women's sports is less exciting, or in other words, women's sports is boring. Mm-hmm. And it is that way, not because the production values aren't there because the excitement and the exciting delivery and all that, you know, the bells and whistles are absent, but it gets interpreted or understood or has the potential to get interpreted and understood as women's sports are just less interesting. Um, and therefore, we really don't have to focus on on, on covering them. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And especially because a lot of people who aren't already women's sports fans are, that's going to be their idea of women's sports to begin with. That's like a cultural idea is that women's sports is the boring, inferior version of whatever it is the men are doing. So then if that's reinforced in the coverage, you can see how that would be particularly damaging. Like it's just telling people like it is exactly what you thought it was. Like we have to Mm -hmm. report on this. But, you know. That's so interesting. Yeah, the idea that if you're watching this over and over again, you're going to see that comparison in a way that maybe I wouldn't even catch. 
if I was watching. Mm-hmm. And the, 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 the kind of exceptions to that were where we did see the high production values, the, the, the investment was in, you know, for example, the, the, um, the coverage of the women's world cup finals and, and the aftermath, right. That, that it was, it was, you know, the, the color, the, the colorful commentary, the, the graphics, the, the transitions, the interviews, the, the experts coming in, you know, Julie Foudy coming in and giving her take on what happened, yeah. interviews with the players, right. All of that. So, but again, and so that's great. If we, but if we can get that on a more consistent right. basis and not that one and done. Yeah. That national, we've talked about this a lot on the show, the nationalism. Well, you know, Trump mm-hmm. the sexism and it's such a powerful yep. thing. That's why the Olympics are such an interesting uh, media landscape too. So now that we've talked about all this stuff, uh, how do we fix it? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I paused because I always love this. Question. I know. And, and um, it's also, it's not necessarily, I don't think it's fair. Like as a journalist, I get this, like, you can't like, as if I have to have the solution in order to point out the problem. I think that that's, there is something deeply unfair about that. Um, but I do wonder now that you've been doing this for so long, like maybe, maybe a better one was like, if you could just change one thing right now, like what would be the very first thing, the mo- like what would be the, yeah. the most important first thing that you would change if you were like the magic wand? And yeah, I thought, I've thought a lot about this and, and I, you know, I think um, we have recommendations in previous iterations of the study. So we in the past have advocated for um, increased uh, quantity of coverage, right? And I think in our last iteration, we suggested going from, and there was a rationale which we provided in the study, but we suggested going from, you know, the the 3%, um, you know, and, and, and pushing that to 12 or 18%. And it was based on a, you know, kind of a particular rationale. It feels like pie in the sky. One fifth of the yeah, coverage right? feels like, ooh, like 12%. Yeah. 12% even. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and, you know, we had, we had, um, advocated for, uh, not just more women, um, but more people in decision-making positions who are invested in women's sports. So hiring people who are invested in covering women's sports with the same kinds of, um, uh, with the same quality, um, as, as men's, uh, and in, in this iteration of the study, we sort of walk through some of those recommendations and talk about, you know, well, how, how, you know, after five years, even some of those basic things that we had called for didn't really seem to come to fruition. So, you know, after 30 years of, so, of sort of advocating and recommending, I, I do get, you know, um, somewhat uh, frustrated with that question. And I get that a lot from a, a number of folks, right? People want to know, right? It's, it's, it's kind of Debbie Downer if you're just like, yeah, this sucks. Okay, peace out. Bye. Right. Yeah. No, I, I understand. Yes. I do Debbie Downer work and people are like, well, what's the solution? Yeah, I'm mean, like, well, ask the people in yeah. charge. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Right. I think um, Sarah, Sarah, I love Sarah Ahmed's work and she talks about, you know, the feminist killjoy and the importance of, of the feminist killjoy. So I don't want to, I think there is um, some, uh, some value in a critique uh, if I were to say, you know, uh, what, what would I want to see? And I, I thought a lot about this because in anticipating this question coming up and to be honest with you, I think one of the things that I would like to see happen and, and I don't know how it happens. Right. So I'm not going to tell you how <laughs> I will tell you what I think I, I've, I've given up on, I've given up hope that, um, that some of these kind of legacy media outlets are going to change. Um, and in fact, 
you know, as I sort of walked us through the origin story of the study, um, you know, I was, uh, I failed to mention that in this latest iteration, we included the online and social media coverage in part because the last time the study came out um, back in 2015, one of the responses we got from um, somebody inside uh, the industry was that no one watches Sports Center anymore. No one watches television. No one watches television news. No one watches Sports Center. You need to look online. You need to look at social media. And lo and behold, so we did that. what did you find? And lo and behold, <laughs> yeah, lo and behold, we did that. Lo and behold, I mean, it's it it. They were right. It is better. Um, but we're talking, you know, nine percent versus five percent, or ten percent versus you know five or six percent. And even that, you guys found that ESPNW skewed everything. Yeah. So if you take ESPNW out of that equation, you, the the numbers are abysmal. Um, and what was what was the issue with the, that was really sad with ESPNW um, was that they their newsletter wasn't a daily newsletter; it was a weekly newsletter. Um, the publication was quite erratic. And in fact, uh, in the middle of our data collection, they stopped publishing the newsletter. Um, oh, wow. so, so the one kind of space within the study that we, we were able to sort of identify some coverage of women's Ugh. sports. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. and so, so I think going back to, to, to your question, right. I, I've given up on the legacy media, right. I, I, I I'm sort of like, I, I've, I've talked to you as, uh, as much as I can. <laughs> You're not going to pick your socks up the, off the floor. <laughs> right. 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 Um, and so I think, I think what we, um, what we need to do is we need to start investing in other media spaces. Um, we, we need to stop, we being, you know, those of us who are, um, you know, women's sports advocates, uh, feminists, um, people who care about women's sports, fans of women's sports, women athletes, girl athletes. We need to stop asking the mainstream for access and for inclusion. And we need to start, like you were saying, burn it all down. Like, create our own spaces, which people have, and we need to start yeah. investing in those spaces. Um, and so, you know, for me, what that looks like is that that's me subscribing to podcasts about women's sports. That's, a, that's me. Um, and this is local level changes, right? But that's me signing up for Lindsay Gibbs's um, Power Plays newsletter um, and investing money in that instead of, you know, renewing my ESPN uh, Plus subscription. Um, and, and so I think, and, and this isn't, I don't want to put the onus on fans to do that. Um, but I think we need to shift the conversation away from, and I say this as somebody who did this research, right. <laughs> um, but I think, yeah. I think we need to shift the conversation away from looking at legacy sport media or mainstream sport media, um, and, and start, um, um, looking at the spaces where the work is actually being done and try to elevate and amplify, um, those spaces and those voices and invest in those spaces and voices. Cheryl, thank you so much for all our, your work, for your time today, for coming on Burn It All Down. This has been wonderful. I feel like I could talk to you for another hour. Uh, where can our listeners find you and your work out there on the internets? Oh, that's a great question. Um, so the study itself is published. Um, it's open access. Uh, so it's not behind a paywall. So anyone, hopefully you'll be able to link to the study. Yeah, we'll link We'll link to it. Um, yep. So they can find me there. Um, I'm also uh, on Twitter. I say on Twitter very loosely, um, at prof cookie. Um, I don't post very much. Um, I'm also, uh, you know, you can find me on the Purdue website. I, I don't social media. That's a whole other story. We can have a conversation about, um, <laughs> gosh, where else can you find me? Facebook? I don't know. Just, you know, Google me. I'm out there. 
I'm on the way. She's out there. (laughs) Thank you so much for coming on Burning All Down. This has been wonderful. Thanks so much. That's it for this best of episode of Burn It All Down. We will be back with our regularly scheduled episodes and interviews starting January 18th. This episode was produced by Tressa Verstag. And shout out to Shelby Weldon, who holds down our web and social media. Burn It All Down is part of the Blue Wire podcast network. We can't wait to get back with you on a regular basis. Until then, of course, you can keep up with the podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. You can listen and subscribe, rate the show wherever you listen to podcasts. And of course, check out our website, burnitalldownpod.com. There you'll find show links, transcripts. You can find the full episodes of the little snippets that we gave you these last few weeks. And find a link there to our Patreon Um, as well as our merchandise store over at Bonfire. And exclusively for you, Flamethrowers, we have a promotion code, FLAMES2022. That's FLAMES2022 to take 22% off of your order all through January. Happy New Year. To our patrons, to our Flamethrowers, to all who support this podcast and all who keep it running, your support continues to mean the world. We cannot wait to explore this new year with you. Burn on, not out. And welcome to 2022, Flamethrowers.